Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. As it still is the first month of the year, we are in the center of January, we are walking through a series illuminating the mission of our church. Our mission is to lead people to Jesus. Those who don't yet know him, to introduce him to his beauty and grace, and those of us that do know him, to encourage each other deeper into relationship with Jesus. We're talking about four cultural values as a church that move us forward in that mission of leading people to Jesus. Last week, we talked about teaching a beautiful Jesus and that everything we teach and every way that we counsel and every way that we interact as a church is centered around Jesus Christ and that we know God the Father and we experience God the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ who came and lived, who died and resurrected so that we could have relationship with God. Today, we're talking about our second part of leading people to Jesus in cultivating consistent community. And I know consistent is a less fun word than beautiful, but we believe that it is powerfully relevant into our current culture. Very few things are consistent anymore. Change is constant and rapid. Individualism means it's hard to tell when we're on the same page with somebody. Even in my own stream of Christian faith, in my own denomination, it's hard for me now more than it was even five or two years ago to have a conversation with another minister and know if we're on the same page or not. Depends on who we're following and who we're reading and what streams we listen to. It is so hard to feel like we're in a consistent community where we share things in common and can walk together in vulnerability. I'll give you a bit of a history of how we ended up here. Much of this will be from John Mark Comer's uh, incredible and timely book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Most historians point to 1370 AD as a turning point in individualism, in hurry and rush, in change in general. 1370 was when the first public clock was established and built in Cologne, Germany. This is the first time we now have time and we're trying to figure out if we're all on the same page with time and what's the rhythm of that and where, where's our time going and do we have enough of it? And then in 1879, Thomas Edison invents the light bulb, allowing human beings to stay awake longer than just sunrise to sunset. We now can stay awake as long as we want and oftentimes many of us do. Growing up as a pastor and learning, many people would talk to me about the saints back in the Reformation and uh, the Great Awakening in the United States, that they'd get up at 4 a.m. to pray every morning. They'd be like, we gotta get up early, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And I am a night owl and that struck terror into my heart. I've maybe gotten up at 4 a.m. to pray twice in my entire life. But it's easy to understand getting up at 4 a.m. to pray if you're John Wesley before the light bulb was invented because you went to bed at 7 p.m. You've already gotten more sleep than I have when I get up at 8 a.m. So I'm kind of all right with getting up at 7.30 a.m. and doing my time of devotional and prayer reading and moving on with my day. But the invention of the light bulb was another move of individualism, falling off schedule with one another, working extra hard, staying up extra late, moving, and bringing more chaos into our schedule. The next giant leap was pretty recent. In fact, most of us watching this have lived through this change. 2007. 
2007 was the invention and the bringing to mass market Steve Jobs' miraculous iPhone. It also was the same year that Facebook went from being just for college students to now anyone with an email address at all can enter into this social media site. Many historians and modern writers of culture and technology say we may, hundreds of years from now, remember 2007 on the same pain as the invention of the Gutenberg Press. It will change society that much. We've seen rapid change in just the last 15 years or so. With a tiny, micro, powerful computer in my pocket, I can move towards individualism of whatever I want, whenever I want, at whatever schedule I want. This makes it so much harder for us to be human beings living in consistent community. And if over the last decade or plus, you have felt more isolated, you have felt more alone, you have felt more disconnected, that's not just you, and it's not an accident. It is a product of our environment and the technology that we live in. Andrew Sullivan, in an essay for the New York Times, writes this about life and technology in the modern world. It says that Judeo-Christian tradition recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence, between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life. The Sabbath, the Jewish institution co-opted by Christianity, was a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. It helped define much of Western public life once a week for centuries, only to dissipate with scarcely a passing regret into the commercial cacophony of the past couple of decades it reflected a now battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without these refuges from noise and work to buffer us and remind us of who we really are. The main brunt of this is about silence versus noise, but there's an additional piece missing that rhythm that used to connect us, even just simply the rhythm of a seven-day Sabbath on the seventh, Six days work, seven day rest that everyone rested together is now gone. So we're moving at our own pace, working night, day, wherever we are, finding ritual and consistent places to be community. Nicholas Carr's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, says, What the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it, in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Many of us are zipping across our lives like a man on a jet ski, zipping across our spiritual lives, zipping across our relational lives. I was recently sick, and in isolation for about eight days. During that time, I was really bored. I also had a lot of brain fog, so it was hard for me to read anything of consequence. So I did something I hadn't done in a really long time. I downloaded little free-to-play games on my phone again. I revisited a stupid game where you hit home runs, and the game is entirely designed to keep you addicted to it. 
You hit home runs, you get little prizes, super bright flashing lights, rewards constantly, alerts constantly, keeping you your attention on the phone. And it wasn't even, and I'm being honest with you in real time, it wasn't until I was reviewing my notes for this message that I said, oh my gosh, I fell into it again. I went in my phone immediately, I deleted all the apps that I installed while I was sick. I had put them in while I was sick, but I kept playing them two weeks afterwards. I had to intentionally go back and delete that chaos and that addiction from my mind. Many of us are living and swimming in this addiction, in this distraction, and we are missing out on what it means to live deeply and richly with one another. When we're talking about leading people to Jesus and cultivating a consistent community, what we mean is the answer to a rapidly changing and erratic culture fueled by social media and individualized tech is to provide consistent communal opportunities and to practice time-tested faith rituals. To come together and agree upon how we view the world and how we view love and grace and mercy brought into it by Jesus Christ. When talking about rapidly changing technology and culture, it's important to contrast it with the biblical view we have of God and our beautiful Jesus. Hebrews 13.8 speaks to the consistency of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the same time, Jesus is physically manifest. He touches people. He embraces people. He resurrected with a body and embraces and touches people after the resurrection. In John 1.14, it says, So the Word, God himself, became human and made his home among us, among his community of people. What does it look like embracing a God who lives among us who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. How do we embrace that consistent communal life? So let's ask the question, why is community necessary in a mission of leading people to Jesus? Why, why is community necessary? Why is that an essential part of it? Can I lead people to Jesus individually? Don't I have an individual relationship with Jesus? Isn't salvation personal? We say personal salvation. It's individual. Don't I have a personal relationship with Jesus? Just the two of us? What about personal evangelism? My call to be sharing faith one-on-one -on -one with others out in the world. Isn't all of this individual? Why do we need to add community? Maybe it's a nice optional thing to have, but that it is essentially a part of the communal mission of leading people to Jesus? Let's look theologically, and we're going to take the whole Bible from beginning to end here to understand the important place of consistent community. Beginning in the beginning, Genesis 2, almost the beginning, verses 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. God declares that it is not good for human being to be alone, when that human being is present with God himself. God is there, walking in the cool of the day, present with this human, with Adam. And God says, it's not good for him to be 
alone. Our relationship with God, by scriptural standard, is not enough for us. It requires relationship with one another. It's difficult to practice love and the love of Christ without another human being to practice it on and with. We are made for community, with our maker and with one another. Continuing, So the Lord God formed from the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose names for each. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all of the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. He's having like an existential crisis. And so he does what we do in existential crisis, eat, pray, love. He travels. He travels to experience the world. Sees beautiful mountains and oceans and, and fields and huge trees. He spends time with creation, animals, and he has probably the best pets in the world following him around. His work is good and meaningful. He gets his hands dirty and it has consequence on the world. He's able to be alone and think deeply. He's able to understand theologically his place in the world because God is there moving and working with him. And yet it's still not enough. He's doing all this individual self-discovery and it's still lacking. Continuing, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Every time I teach this passage, I like to clarify that I think even though I love the New Living Translation because it's easy to follow and pretty accurate, there are parts where I think the language struggles. This is one of them. The use of the word rib out of Adam is a reduction of the Hebrew word used here that is from his side. And so a piece of him is split off, not literally a rib taken out of his body, but he's split off. Many scholars understand this passage to be that one person was split to create two people and that those two people were diversely different but complementary. And so God took one being, created two beings, so that they could come back together as one through mutual love and sacrifice and grace. There's so much beauty in that idea in and of itself that we are incomplete until we share our lives with others and that we are made different from each other. The Hebrew words are even wordplay, ish and isha, playing together, complementary sources. You are different from me. I'm different from you. And we are called to graciously accept each other's differences, lay down our own preferences so that our complementary gifts can serve creation, this world, one another better and more fully. This passage is not just about male and female and marriage. This is about human relationships and our call to live in consistent community. Let's continue the story. So it begins, God creates man. Man is not just enough being alone with God's presence. Man needs community. We continue, Genesis chapter 17, Verse 4, this is where God begins a redemption plan for humanity through a communal family. 
This is God speaking to Abraham, the beginning man patriarch of this family. This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. One of the beautiful mechanisms of the Bible as we read it is God's choice to do things in a messy, gracious manner. He doesn't bring about Jesus Christ through direct revelation, a zap, a descent from the mountain, but he brings it through a messy communal family. And you can see from Genesis chapter 17 here and God telling Abraham, there's beautiful language here. I will be your God. I will bless your nation. You will do great and blessed things through you. And you would think, all right, from here on out, it's going to be really awesome. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be loving. It's a mess after this. His son is pretty good, but after his son, generation after generation of chaos, of lying, stealing, of dissent from one another, this is the mechanism God chooses because it's not just the pain of being in relationship and hurting one another. It's also the beauty of God working love, grace, and mercy in those relationships. And it is through community that God chose to bring about the work of Christ entering this world. It's the community of a family. It's the community of a people under Moses. It's the community of a nation under David that brings about a communal product of Jesus Christ entering our world, not just to save us from sin, but to save us from the consequences of sin in the brokenness of our relationships. So we see Jesus Christ enter the world. And let's move now to the New Testament, jumping pretty far, into Mark chapter 1. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. In the Gospels, in Mark chapter 1, 16 verses into the beginning of the story, we see Jesus recruiting a team, rec recruiting a community around him. And at one part, he even calls this community his family. These, this is my family, these men and women who I'm sharing my life with. God himself on earth, more than capable, chooses to live in community with one another consistently choosing and loving and forgiving in his relationships. Not only that, but parable after parable that Jesus shares are relationally and communally driven. Whether it's a lost son being restored back to his family, whether it's a banquet feast of friends and family gathered around, or whether it is a farmer and a property owner dealing with his employees and his community. More often than not, what Jesus is teaching about is about broken relationship, broken community, broken trust with one another, and that it needs to be restored back by loving grace, by learning to give up our own individual desires and pleasures and pride, 
to restore one another back into consistent community. We then see this continue on after Jesus' death and resurrection into the early church. Maybe the most famous few passages about the early church is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The New Testament church model is communal. It's about sharing things in common. Those with more gave up their abundance for those with less. They came together and were equals at the table. Whether there was different societal or ethnic hierarchies, they all were gone around the communal table of the church that they celebrated and shared together. They shared in each other's burdens, prayed for them, fasted and desired God to see reconciliation, and they celebrated together when God was doing work of transforming and setting people free from sin and death. And that type of community was infectious, was drawing people into it. That if we can be a church known for consistently loving community, never mind the three other aspects of leading people to Jesus, if people can see a place, a community, a family where there is consistent, gracious love for one another, and consistent desire to be with and to share one another's burdens, this is something the world is greatly hungry for. Into our chaos and change comes consistent loving community. And now we round it all out, the end of the book. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. This is at the end of all things when Jesus Christ returns. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and every people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. This passage is a celebration of the diversity of humanity coming together and graciously worshiping together God's loving presence. You cannot have community without diversity. If we live in homogeneity, where we're all the same and we share everything in common, it's not true community. I'm basically spending time with other versions of myself. I'm Loki in the multiverse. I'm basically just by myself in slight variations of me. And the reason it's not true community is it doesn't call me to give anything up for the sake of another. Community is where the diverse beauty of humanity that is made beautifully diverse by God's creation and its forces on us that has made us ethnically different and visually racially different, that we can come together and give up our preferences for another, give up what we desire, have patience on things that might irk or aggravate us so that others feel welcomed and loved. Love is choosing to put the wants and needs of another above our own. And diversity is a beautiful opportunity 
for us to come together and let go of some of our identity to come together in diverse beauty. My phone and my social media create a homogeneity I am not even aware of. There are algorithms and there are social structures in place on our online platforms and on the web that create categories where we are in everything we like. And we are exposed to people who think like us, feel like us, believe like us, post like us. And it creates us to be very selfish and shallow people. I'm not challenged by the diversity of another person. I'm not challenged that maybe some of my assumptions about this world may be wrong. I'm not challenged that maybe some of the ways I'm living my life are lazy and selfish. I'm not challenged at all because everything tells me I've been right all along, I am still right, and everything is going to be like myself. This is why a key to this and a key to spiritual development for us in the modern world in 2022 is to lay down our devices, to set time aside to be in the presence of other people, flesh and blood, that aren't like us, that might be different from us, and to learn to graciously love and live together. To grow in consistent community is to submit ourselves to the tough work of friction and vulnerability. In Genesis 3, after humanity's eyes became open, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, sin entered, they hid themselves from relationship and they pointed blame at each other. Because of the sin in our lives, our insecurities and vulnerabilities, it is risky and often painful in order to take steps into community. Because it's community where we are often most hurt. Someone promises to do something in our life and they don't come through. We share something vulnerable about ourselves and we're judged for it or it's weaponized against us. But it's also in community where we receive acceptance and love from another, where we receive grace and mercy from another. The deeper we go relationally and consistently, the stronger we become. The more you are willing to let yourself be known, the more faith you put in Jesus, the more others can know you as we trust that Jesus has taken care of our sin we don't worry about others judging us or using it against us. We think that strength comes from doing it on our own. I'm free. I'm going to go on a solo journey around the world. I'm free to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I don't worry about other people's feelings or opinions. The CEO who rose to the top all on their own. The guy who solo climbed Mount Everest. The woman who doesn't need no man to be successful. All of these pieces where we glorify Rampant individualism. When what we've seen from God himself is the vulnerable desire to lay down his own strength for the loving desire of community and for one another. Sure, I can go faster alone. I can go further and more lovingly further with one another together. Jesus lived in three types of community. And each of these communities has its own sacrifice necessary, but then its own beautiful product in our life as it heals us and draws us more to the example of Christ. Jesus lived in community. 
larger community. He was a part of a movement. He was a part of a people. It says in the gospel stories that there were often hundreds and thousands that followed Jesus, that were around 5,000 just men that were there as Jesus taught and then he fed them. There are hundreds and thousands around Jesus. This is the wider community brought together by belief, shared vision, and shared mission. There are millions, if not billions, of Christians on this planet. And we are held together by a singular belief that makes us a Christian. And that is belief in Jesus Christ as God, who died for the sins of the world and resurrected. Very limit, that's the basics of being a follower of Jesus and a Christian. More specifically, in our community as a church at Pennington AG, we are brought together by a mission of leading people to Jesus. That's what makes our community whole at Pennington AG. That's what makes us a church body. And it's our identifying factor. I'm a part of this church because I love the mission of leading people to Jesus. That it's not just about us, but it's also about those outside of the church to come and know it. I get to hear about kingdom builders and the projects taking the mission around the world and into our community and Mercer County and the effects of that. Or it's about, I love the mission of leading people to Jesus because we never settle with how much of him we have and we're reading scripture and we're praying together and living in community. This is the wider community brought together by a shared mission, vision, or belief. Then we see Jesus with his committed group. Those are the, the 12. He had 12 disciples. They were the people he shared life with, committed to share life with them. Some people say, Jesus' greatest miracle was not that he walked on water, was not that he fed 5,000, but that he was a man in his 30s with 12 good friends. That's incredible. He lived his life in a tight-knit group where he shared his vulnerabilities. He shared at the dinner table with these 12 men that he would die. He shared with them his own vulnerabilities, his angers, his, his passions with them. He shared them. And they walked together and they discipled and they studied and they prayed. You can't do this in Pennington AG as a church with the hundred or so of us gathered in a room at a time. We do this in our small group communities. We do this with about a dozen people. We study the scriptures together. We share what's going on in our life. We wrestle together in prayer. We do this in our smaller mid-sized groups, our prayer nights on Wednesday nights, when we come together and we share these vulnerabilities. Then Jesus lived in what's known as a core, his core three, James, John, and Peter. Those were his three closest, most intimate relationships. They were the ones he revealed who he truly was to, his deepest insecurities, vulnerabilities, and desires. He reveals his glory on top of the mountain to them. He comes and restores them back and has deep conversation in John 21. He has a special and unique relationship with them. If you don't have people in your life that you consider part of your core, where you can be vulnerable, exposed, and real with them, I challenge you to begin to do the hard work of evaluating, building, or growing into this. And I don't mean like, you know, take out your Facebook and scroll and try and find this person I'm gonna become core friends with. It happens in descending order. Probably from your community, you form into your committed, your small group community, your small group of committed, consistent community members. From that group, 
often we develop our core relationships. And that takes years, honestly. Years of life together, years of sharing. Don't rush the process, don't be frustrated as it takes time to grow. And it will take consistent choices of laying down your own desires, laying down your own opinions, laying down your own privileges to build relationship with others sacrificially. And in this way, we model the work of the beautiful Jesus we teach, study, and come to as Lord of our lives. As Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends, we practice in consistent community, laying down the preferences and privileges of our life to build loving community with one another. In 2022, off of the back of two years of the worst foundational cultural years to build consistent community I've ever lived through, our desire is to prayerfully and strategically create consistent community, cultivate consistent community in our church body, creating mid-sized groups where we get to know each other in safe environments, training up small group leaders who are pastoral and consistent, leading our small group semesters where you can consistently jump in and know where they are and join into a group, consistent moments of community before and after worship services that you can be known and know one another. I encourage you this year as we lead people to Jesus to fight for consistent community with one another. May we live in the model of Jesus by lovingly laying down our life for each other. You may have watched this message today and you may not even have a relationship with Jesus yourself. I wanna give you a chance to pray a simple prayer in this moment that will begin that journey of following Jesus. If you'll pray this prayer with me in this moment. God, I believe you came to this earth as Jesus, that you were fully man and fully God, and you lived and walked on this earth. You taught love, grace, and mercy, and you lived a righteous, sinless life. And then you went to the cross and you died the wages of my sin and death, and you died in my place. You were buried in the ground, and on the third day, you rose from the grave, resurrected, full of glory, to lead and to Lord over this earth. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that today for the first time, I just encourage you to click one of the links around this video. We would love to know, celebrate, and walk a consistent, loving life alongside of you. Thank you for joining me for this teaching at Pennington AG Church.